Good morning again, everybody. It's great to have you here, and uh, we want to welcome you to Cheney Faith Center. Glad you're here and that you're worshiping Jesus with us. want to quickly remind you we exist to help people know Jesus and live for him daily. And so if that's where you're at, we'd love for you to join us in that. We're excited about that. Well, I've got several things for you this morning uh, before I get to my message, so I wanted to let you know about them. Uh, the first is I wanted to let you know that our baptism class is about to begin out in the commons. Pastor Kate's going to teach our baptism class this morning. So if you want to be a part of that, uh, head out to the commons, and um, they're going to be talking about water baptism and its importance. Let me remind you really quickly of our, our policy about water baptism, because next um, Sunday we'll, we will be doing water baptism on Easter, and we'll also be doing open water baptisms as well. But we wanted to remind you about our policy that we we ask that um, kind of our age there is 12. So if you're under 12, we ask that you attend the baptism class and that you talk to pastoral staff with your parents uh, in order to get water baptized. We do that because um, one of my heart's desires is that those really important moments in our faith, we remember them well. And for the rest of our life, we remember them well. And so um, we, we ask that you be after the age of 12. That also gives you an opportunity to really process and make a decision about whether or not this is your decision and not just a parent's decision or something like that. And so that's great. Now, some of you in the room are probably thinking, I have a 14-year-old, and I'm wondering if they're ready because maybe, maybe they're not. Well, here's the most important thing. Um, talk about water baptism with your kids. And if you want them to talk to us about it, and they're over 12, and you're like, well, I'd love for them to just have a conversation with you about that. Uh, pastoral staff are ready and able to do that at any time. So 12-year-old um, isn't like a hard, fast thing, but we do want you to know it's something that we process well. And we want to do a good job with water baptism because we want to do a good job in those moments where our faith is really important and where we make big decisions for Jesus, we want to do a good job with those. So um, if you're, if you're uh, under 12 and you want to get baptized next week, or if, you, or, if, or if you're over 12 and want to get baptized next week, then head on out to the baptism class right now. That'd be great. All right, uh, our Easter services. On your seat, you got a little card talking about our Easter services. So our Good Friday, our Good Friday prayer experience is happening this Friday from 11 a.m. to 8 p.m. Uh, just highly encourage you to come out to this. We're going to transform the auditorium into our prayer experience. It's an awesome day to remember the death and resurrection of Jesus and the cross and how important it is in our life. And then Easter services are uh, 5.50 sunrise service at Crunks Field and um, 8.30 and 10.30 here in the auditorium next Sunday. So this is for you. Please take it with you. It's an opportunity for you to invite a friend or family member or a neighbor. So take this with you and use it as an opportunity to start a conversation about Jesus and Easter. I also wanted to give you an opportunity to um, see our new council, our new church council. Last week, we voted on our new council and ratified the three new individuals on our council. So on the screen, you will see our new council made up of six individuals, Dwayne Isaac, Tyler Jaquish, Tracy Prophet, Patty Preer, Jason Smedley, and Kelly Ward. 
Do you mind, uh, can we just give them a hand for serving and serving our church and um, just doing a great job to keep us fiscally sound and accountable, but also just helping us stay on mission for Jesus. That's really important, and they do a great job of helping us with that. So that's your current church council and will continue to be for the year. All right. Um, Lastly, I want to talk about an opportunity for us this morning to take an offering for Ukraine. We talked about this last week and have been heading to this Sunday as an opportunity to take an offering for Ukraine. As you know, most of us know what's going on in Ukraine, so I don't need to explain all that. But we have a part of our denomination called Foursquare Disaster Relief. And whenever there is a disaster in the United States or around the world, Foursquare Disaster Relief tries to get involved. And mostly the way they get involved is by the local church helping local people in the area that that local church is geographically. And as they do that, they get to care for the needs of individuals, uh, which there are many in Ukraine. And they also get an opportunity to, um, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people in that area that has had a disaster. And many times that's an opportunity to talk about Jesus because we get shaken up a little bit, and it's an opportunity to just hear the gospel. And so we want to take an offering for that this morning. And the way we've set that up is when you go to our website, chinifacecenter.org, right when you go there, there will be a screen that you, can, that you can click on or that you can press if you're on your phone, and it will take you right to the Foursquare Disaster Relief Push Pay website where you can give to Foursquare Disaster Relief. So if you want to do that right now, you can, or if you want to do it later, you can as well. But we wanted to make that available for us this morning because um, it's such an important opportunity for us. And it's also a great opportunity because we have several churches, uh, four square churches in the Ukraine and in Russia that are partnering together right now for the gospel. They've always been partnering together, and now they're doing it even more. And so I want to highly encourage you to do that and to give and to be the hands and feet of Jesus extended to that part of the world that is suffering greatly. And so um, if you'd like to give, uh, you can do that um, right now as we get started with my message, or you can do it after church, all right? Well, grab your Bible this morning and open it to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. We're in our series called Do I Trust God? And this morning, we're going to look at a section of verses in Matthew 21, and it's, it's about Jesus entering Jerusalem just about a week, five to seven days before his death and resurrection. And it's this traditional celebratory moment that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And I want us to look at this moment in Jesus' life and kind of use it as a a launching pad for a really important question about us trusting in God. And so let me take a moment and just remind us about this story that is in Matthew chapter 21. In Matthew 21, Matthew records, and, and all of the Gospels do, in fact, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Now, this is a moment when Jesus has a very large crowd of people following him around wherever he's going. 
Now, in particular, the reason there's a very large crowd following him lately uh, in the past several days is because he, he, he just raised Lazarus from the dead. And this was a monumental, spectacular miracle where Jesus uh, goes to Lazarus' tomb. He's been dead for four days. They open the tomb. It's super smelly because there's a dead guy in there. And Jesus raises him from the dead, and he literally comes out in his grave clothes. He comes out with all of his grave clothes all over them, probably peeling them off of him like, what in the world's going on? I was in heaven one second ago, and here I am in this tomb again. And he comes out, and the people that are there, I mean, this is a spectacular miracle. And Lazarus is alive now, and so there's been all of this stir all over Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and Jericho, and the surrounding areas have all had this wonderful moment portrayed to them, and Jesus knows that he's heading to the cross, and to fulfill the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9 that says, say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the fowl of a donkey, Jesus asks the disciples to go into Jerusalem, get a donkey that's tied up there, bring it out, and he would ride it in. Now, as he does this, the crowd is super excited. And so they begin to lay down their cloaks, their, their cloaks and their coats. They grab palm branches. They lay them on the ground. All is a, a sign of somebody very, very important and very, very significant coming into Jerusalem. And they believe that is Jesus. They believe that he is the Messiah, that he is the the new king, that they would like to, the new person they'd like to be king. They begin to shout things like, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. See, the disciples in the crowd were very excited about Jesus. They've watched him for three years, heal the dead, heal the sick, walk on water, all these things that Jesus has done, and they're, they're completely convinced that, this, that he should be their king, that he should take political power, that he should destroy the Romans, and he should give them back their country. Now, that was the mindset of the Jewish culture of the day that they believed that the Messiah would be this David-like figure, their greatest king. So this David-like figure, a royal person, a military leader that would overthrow Jerusalem, that would rule the the day, that the Romans would be kicked out, and they would get back to their country the way they would like it to be. This is one of the reasons they're yelling, and they're yelling out to, to Jesus that he's the son of David. But here's what's interesting. Jesus does the opposite. He does the opposite of what a David royal militaristic figure should do as you come into your city where you're about to rule. The first thing Jesus does is he comes in riding on a, on a donkey. So the first thing you need to know is a donkey is not a a militaristic animal. You didn't ride a donkey into battle. 
because donkeys were, for one, frustrating and hard to ride, but for two, they weren't really battle-ready. And so if you were going to come into Jerusalem, Jesus should have come into Jerusalem and riding a large stately horse, one that would be snorting out of his nostrils and Jesus would be straining to hold him back because he's such a powerful animal and he would be making this statement of power and superiority over the enemies in Jerusalem, in particular Rome, and he's ready to, to take over and to overthrow them. But he doesn't. He comes in gentle on a donkey. And so in this moment, we're reminded that this is a good example that as people, we can often think the opposite of what God is thinking. And when we think the opposite of what God is thinking, we often miss what God wants to do in our own life in the moment and in the future. But it all starts with our thinking. Let me give you an example. Jesus was focused on the cross. The people were focused on the throne. Jesus was thinking about freedom from sin and the, and the, the control that sin has on our present daily lives and that if we don't ignore that, it leads to eternal death where the people were thinking about freedom from Rome. Just a couple weeks before this day, you'll remember Jesus was talking to his disciples about going to Jerusalem, and he begins to really explain to them that he's going to Jerusalem to die. And this flies in the face of their idea of a Messiah, and Peter immediately rebukes Jesus. And he rebukes him for thinking that, for saying that, and you remember the answer that Jesus gives back to Peter in Matthew 16, 23? Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, just for a moment, Jesus was not calling Peter Satan. We need to notice that, okay? That's not what Jesus was doing but it was calling the thought process that Peter had satanic. And it's also true in our culture today that we can have thought processes and ideas and thinkings that are so ungodly that we need to be reminded if we don't stop thinking that way, we will be a stumbling block to Jesus and our lives will be completely concerned about ourselves instead of on what God has in mind for us. See, what we see is Jesus had a reason and a purpose for why he rode into Jerusalem this way, on a donkey instead of a horse. He had a purpose for dying on a cross. He had reasons that, that everything he did and that he said and every miracle that he did, every teaching that he taught, he had a reason and a purpose behind it so that you and I could think correctly about who God is. In fact, every command in the Bible has a reason and a purpose for our best. So trusting God means trusting him with our thinking. And 
I want to think deeply about a question today. And here's the question I'd like us to think about. Do you trust that what God says is best for your life today? Do you trust that what God says, and what God does for that matter too, is best for your life today? Our theme verse for this series is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And the beginning of that verse says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In the message it says, Trust God from the bottom of your heart. Don't try to figure out everything on your own. New Living says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. The first part of this verse declares that if you and I are going to trust in the Lord, then we have to reframe our thinking. That our thinking needs to change. In Proverbs 3, 7, the very next verse, it says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. The message says, Don't assume that you know it all. New Living says, don't be impressed with your own wisdom. So I want to propose to us this morning that if we're going to trust God, then we will need to put to death some of our ideologies, some of our philosophy, some of our thinking. And if we want to trust that what God says is best for our lives, then some of our thinking will need to die just like it needed to die on Palm Sunday for the first disciples. Now, why? Why does that need to happen? Because the way we think is the way we live. The philosophies we embrace, the ideas we hold to, the things that we think in our mind and in our brain are the way that we live. For instance, if you think it's okay to steal, then what? You'll steal. If you think that's okay, if you've worked out in your mind and in your thoughts and in your philosophy of life that it's okay for you to steal from Maverick, then you'll steal a candy bar or whatever from Maverick, a drink. It's okay for you. But if you think God told you not to steal and you've embraced that truth and that you want to honor him, then your life will change. You'll say, I'm not supposed to steal. That's not my stuff. That's that's that person's stuff, and God wants them to have it, and me to have my stuff, and them to have their stuff, and that's how it should be. If you think it's okay to gossip, you'll gossip. Your social media will look very different. If you think it's okay to gossip, like, everything's okay. My social media will look crazy gossiping about everyone and everything. But if you, if you hold to the truth in God's word, that the things that we say and the words that we use can bring encouragement and empower the people around us to follow Christ, then you'll use your words carefully. That starts as a mindset. If you think, you know what? Credit cards are awesome. I think they're the greatest thing ever. Then you'll be in a lot of debt. (laughs) And you'll struggle financially. See, the way we think about every subject will affect how we live. And so God has laid out his word, and God has given us thoughts about every subject in the Bible. Did you know that? Did you know you can read through the Bible and find 
all kinds of things about what God thinks and what God wants for our lives. You'll find things about money and marriage and gender and sex and sexuality and community, the words we use, what we watch with our eyes, violence, the poor, culture, all of those things are in this book. All of it. Helping us understand what God thinks. So when we read about all these subjects in God's Word, a good question for us is, do you trust that what God says is best for your life today? Back to Peter for a moment. Peter had a way of thinking about the Messiah. And his mindset didn't include Jesus dying on a cross or dying at all. And so Peter's thoughts were very different from Jesus' thoughts. And I don't think any of us want to hear Jesus say to us, you're a stumbling block to me. Or you, have, you don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And, and I don't want to be a stumbling block to Jesus, and I don't think anybody else in here probably wants to be that either. But the reality is there can be times where you and I can think differently than God does, and we got to work that out. Now, you say, well, Pastor Mark, I think I've got it all figured out. Really? Peter hung out with Jesus for three years every single day, and he still had some things he needed to work out. And so it's probably true that each of us in this room have some things we need to work out. And that's okay. God's patient and kind. But this morning, I think it's appropriate for us to say, if I'm going to trust God with my future, I'm going to trust God with my life now, then I have to think like God does. Because I want to have the concerns of God in my mind, not only human concerns or my own concerns. Now, thankfully, Peter got his thinking figured out after the resurrection of Jesus, because it became very apparent after Jesus rose from the dead, oh, that's what you're doing. Well, that was really cool. I'm going to have to change what I was thinking about the Messiah moving forward because I want to communicate this with the world, and you're just rocking my thinking right now, and that's really cool. So I'm going to change my thinking about how the, who the Messiah is, which leads us to a question too. How can we trust that what God thinks is best is best for our lives. Well, let's look at some things that I think God's Word tells us. I think the New Testament is very clear. It's also very helpful about the challenges that we all have in trusting God with our thoughts, our philosophies about life, our ideologies. And there's several really, really important verses about our thinking in the New Testament and about how we live for Jesus in light of that thinking, and how God wants to help us learn how to trust him with our thoughts. So let's look at four verses that I think in particular are very, very important in this topic and what they can teach us. The first one is in Romans 12, 1 and 2. And it says this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve 
what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Have you ever thought, man, I just need to know the will of God right now for my life? Well, this verse says, if I'm not conforming to the pattern of this world, and my mind is being changed and renewed by Jesus, then I will be able to know the will of God for that situation, for that moment in my life. See, this verse tells us that living in the will of God requires us to transform our thinking. If I'm going to live in the will of God for my life and you too, then I will have to transform my thinking. If you want to be a living sacrifice for Jesus, then we'll have to think correctly. See, as a true worshiper of God, this verse says, I need to stop doing something and start doing something new. After all, I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old things are gone and the new have come. So I have to stop doing something. I have to stop conforming to this world, to the pattern of this world, and I have to start thinking and transforming my thinking into what God has for me. So the first thing is I have to stop conforming to the pattern of this world. Now here's what's interesting. This verse is declaring that the world has a pattern for you and I to live in. Have you noticed what the pattern is? The pattern is fairly simple. The pattern of our world is to get us to not think about Jesus. That's the pattern. The pattern is to get us as far away from Jesus as we can. And that's because the pattern of this world was not thought up by God. The pattern that you and I are living in is not the pattern that God has designed for us. Because we're not living according to God's word, we're living according to ourselves. And the traditions of men, and the thoughts of men, and the philosophies of men. As a result, we're not thinking about and processing life the way God wants us to. And so Paul says this was happening in the first century too. In the first century, everyone was supposed to think like a Roman. And you were supposed to worship multiple gods. And you were supposed to do in Rome as the Romans do. And so you're supposed to live your life like a good Roman because you've been conquered by the Romans. And Paul says, no, we have to transform our minds. I can't think about my life living like a Roman anymore. I have to transform my life and start thinking about living for Jesus. So if we think like the world instead of like Jesus, then we'll become like Peter, useless to Jesus and kind of stuck on our own thinking. I don't know about you, but have you noticed that your mind likes to think about yourself most of the time? Mine does. And sometimes I just hate that, right? Like I'm always so selfish. Why am I thinking about myself right now? You know, why am I doing that? Why, why does my mind gravitate to myself and my flesh and what I want all the time? Because that's how we are as humans. And so what Paul is saying is, I have, you and I, we got to break out of that cycle of thinking. And it starts right up here in my mind. See, if I think like the world, I'll live like the world. But if I think like Jesus, I'll live like Jesus. It's really that simple. And so Paul says, hey, if you want to live like Jesus, let's start thinking like Jesus. 
The second verse is Colossians 2.8. Colossians 2.8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Now here's what Paul's saying. In the Greek and the Roman world, there was a lot. They loved the idea of new philosophy. There, there were uh, just people sitting around and the idea of thinking about new philosophies and new ways to live. There would be all kinds of, in every city you could find a, a space in the Roman Empire where there would be a space in that town where men would just sit around and talk about new and different philosophies. We still have people that we, that we call upon as our heroes of philosophy, Plato and Socrates, that are from this time, that are from this era, that are saying this is what's really important, to sit down and mull over the traditions of men and to figure all that out. And what Paul is saying is sometimes those can just be hollow and deceptive things because they aren't based on Creator God. They're not based on Jesus. They're based on what, what we think about life. And as long as we continue to think about life the way we think about life, we're always going to come to a kind of a wonky conclusion. But when we think about life according to God's Word and according to Jesus, we will find our conclusion and the way we choose to live honoring to God because we're honoring His Word and we're honoring God's Word. So this verse reminds me that the philosophies of men can be hollow and deceptive. The message says that we can have big words and intellectual double talk. New Living says that we can have empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense. Now, this is the world in which we live right now, too. There's a lot of high-sounding nonsense we throw around really big words and we come up with the most extreme condition of life to come up with a new philosophy when 99.9% .9 of the world is living the opposite direction or the opposite way physically, biologically, and everything else. But we gravitate to what? Towards the hollow and deceptive philosophy because we've listened to intellectual double talk and high-sounding nonsense. This word in the Greek is the word kenos. It means empty. It, it, it means empty-handed. It means that when I go to the marketplace, I've, I've got nothing to buy something with because my hand is empty. It has nothing of value in it. What Paul is saying is that can happen in my brain. I can end up with actually nothing but nonsense and nothing that is good, nothing profitable to even go to the marketplace and share and do life with. That can happen in my brain. And when it does, I stop thinking about Jesus. Now here's what else Paul says in, in conjunction to that thought. That these philosophies can actually take you captive. Do you notice that's the first thing he said? See to it that no one takes you captive captive. Now that word is the word that often in the Greek and Roman text was used for slavery. In other words, what Paul is saying 
is there can be hollow and deceptive thinking that turns you into its slave. And you begin to think like that philosophy. You begin to think like that ideology. And before you know it, you're living that way because of the way you think. And I, in our day, right now, we live in 20, 2022, and that's happening in our world. It's happened in every generation. This is nothing new. Every generation has ways that the world is thinking, the ways that the, the culture, the society, the nation that they live in thinks that is not thinking about Christ, and we have to bring it back to him. As believers, we don't desire to get stuck or taken captive in the thinking of the world We don't want to ignore Jesus that way. We want to say that Jesus knows what's best for me, and so I need to dive into his word. I need to dig into his word and study it wholeheartedly, memorize it, make it the purpose of my life so that I am following Christ. Now, you may ask, how how can I know if a philosophy is good or bad? Well, if a philosophy is based on human tradition or human thinking or completely ignores anything about Jesus or anything that Jesus or God's word has said, you can probably be pretty assured that that philosophy is going to be hollow or deceptive. Here's another way to to see that. If you're talking with someone uh, about uh, a certain subject matter or a certain philosophy about life, and you try to insert Jesus into the conversation, and Jesus is quickly denied or ignored, or that person says, I don't want to talk about Jesus in this conversation, then you immediately know that is a hollow and deceptive philosophy. If, I, if, if they don't want to bring the truth of God's word or the truth of Jesus into the conversation, then you can be pretty, pretty assured that that philosophy is not of Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.19 says, The wisdom of this world is foolishness. In God's sight. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. In other words, conversations that you want wisdom and knowledge to be at the center of that conversation, then you have to bring in God to that conversation. You have to bring God into that philosophy. You have to bring God into that ideology. You have to bring God into that thinking if you want true wisdom. So do you trust that what God says is best for your life today. Another verse is Ephesians 6, 12 through 17. It says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. Let me start there. Paul is very clear in Ephesians 6, verse 12 and 13, that we're not battling against men in our culture. We're battling against the enemy of our soul. That there is someone and something, there are powers that are greater than the physical ones we see on the planet. There are authorities that have authority in the spiritual realm that are way more important than authorities in the physical realm. And that there are powers of a dark world, and there are spiritual forces of evil that come against mankind. Now, why would they do that? Why would, why would there be evil forces of darkness 
against you and against me and against everyone on this planet? Well, simply, because you are loved by God. God loves you. I want you to think about something kind of interesting when you think about this in light of this verse. Think about the fact that you have a soul and all of heaven and all of hell is fighting over your soul. That makes your soul pretty important. This verse, what Paul is saying is all of heaven and all of hell is fighting over your thinking, over your faith, over your righteousness, over your truth, over God's word. There's a spiritual battle, and we're now seeing a physical one in culture and society, all over your soul and mine. But here's what's interesting. In verse 17, Paul said this, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This is part of your armor. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. Now, this this just tells me that there's a battle for your brain. Right now, in our life, there's a battle for your brain for your thinking, for your philosophy, for your ideology. The enemy of your soul wants you to think like he does so you never live like Jesus. Now, for a long time, I, I would study this section, and I would always think, why did Paul say that the article of spiritual battle that covers my brain is the helmet of salvation? Like, why didn't he call it the helmet of wisdom? Like, because I'm supposed to think wise thoughts, Right? Why didn't he call it the helmet of Christ or the the helmet of knowledge or the helmet of good thinking, good thoughts, positive thoughts? The helmet of positive thoughts. That's what it should be. Why did Paul call it the helmet of salvation? Let me tell you why. Because when you and I give in to deceptive thinking and hollow philosophies in our world, it will destroy your positive thinking. No. Paul says it will destroy your salvation. In other words, Paul is saying it's possible that if you and I let hollow and deceptive philosophies into our head and start living them out, we'll actually walk away from Jesus. We won't just lose our positive thinking because does Satan care if you lost your positive thinking? No, he doesn't care. He cares about your soul. He wants to drag your soul to hell. He doesn't care about your positive thinking. He cares about your salvation. He cares about you completely denying Christ as a result of your thinking and your way of living. And so Paul says you better guard that You better put a helmet over that. You better start thinking like Jesus wants you to, or there could be serious consequences about the way you think moving forward. That's huge. Lastly, 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This reminded me that the Bible communicates what is best for our lives today. That this book 
still today has the life that I need in it for today. And that there's nothing in our world today that this book cannot help me with. That everything in this book is best for my life today. Look at it closely with me. The Bible does four things, 2 Timothy says here. The Bible teaches. In other words, it tells me what I don't know. That's what a teacher does, right? A teacher tells me things that I don't know and that I get to process them and take them in and make them a part of my life. So God's Word teaches. It tells me things that I didn't know before. It rebukes. Now, I don't like this one, but frankly, it's here, so we've got to address it, right? It's right there, rebuke, right? And a rebuke is, let's just call it, um, it's an adult spanking. Let's call it that. That's what it is. And occasionally, we need one. You ever thought about that? Occasionally, Pastor Mark needs a spanking. That happens. Why? Because my thinking's off. My life's off. I'm not following God's word. I'm not thinking like Jesus. I'm somehow caught up in some deceptive philosophy. And I need an adult spanking. And I need God's word to give me that. Why? Because if I continue down that road, something really bad might happen at the end of that road. And God says, I don't want you to go there. It corrects. It keeps us living in God's will. Corrects means boundaries. It gives us boundaries. God's word gives us boundaries. Just like we have barriers on the sides of roads so that if our car goes off the edge of the road a little bit, it'll hit the barrier and keep us on the road instead of us completely falling off the cliff and dying. That's what God's word does. It it keeps us on God's road, on God's path for our life so that you and I don't get off the path completely somewhere driving off in the woods, and before we know it, we've completely lost God's path for our life. And lastly, it trains. In other words, it prepares us for everything life throws at us. This is why it's so important to be in God's Word every single day, because it's teaching It's rebuking, it's correcting, it's training us. Now, in particular, it's training us, it's rebuking us, it's teaching us in what? In righteousness. So Paul says, it's it's teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, the word righteousness means to live right. To live right, to know what's right, to live right, to put it into practice. That's what the word righteousness means. And so the Bible is teaching and rebuking and correcting and training us to live the right way. Why? So we don't become a stumbling block to Jesus. Or so that we're not taken captive by the world or its thinking. Or worst of all, that we just completely abandon Jesus all together. The writers of the New Testament are very clear. And the writers of the New Testament, way more than, uh, than anywhere else, we see them talking about what's happening in our heart, but what also is happening in my mind. Because we know that this space between my head and my heart, it, it's probably the longest distance on the planet. 
But here's what, here's what God's word is saying. I've got to get God's word, Jesus thinking, God's thinking, the Holy Spirit's thinking. I've got to get them in my head in the hope that the Holy Spirit will help them gravitate to my heart and that will become the person I am. And I'll understand my identity, my purpose, my value. My life will change as a result of God's word being in my mind and in my heart and in my actions. Now that's not easy to do today, is it? It's not easy to do because we have so many things right now being thrown at us to think about in the opposite direction of Christ. But my challenge to you this morning is to keep it simple. Think like Jesus and you'll live like Jesus. And so I want to encourage you as we head towards Easter, would you just take this week because probably this week you'll go through the processes of your normal weekly life and think about what you think about. What do you look at on your phone? What do you watch on TV? What do you process through the day? What social media are you letting in? All of that adds to our thinking. And it can change our thinking. It can mold and shape our thinking. What education are you, are you letting in that's that's beginning to change your life. Think about all those things this week as we head towards um, celebrating Jesus' death and resurrection. And let's, let's answer this question. Do you trust that what God says is best for your life today? Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Jesus, we just want to say thank you. I thank you for the cross and the resurrection and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that you've given us. I thank you for those things because they're exactly what we need right now in 2022 to live for you, to think like you did. And thank you for your word. Jesus, the Bible is so precious. It's exactly what we need in our life today. I pray that you would help every single one of us in this room to let God's word teach us and rebuke us and correct us and train us. Would we become people that just have a fire for your word, for its truth, for what it tells us about how to live today? That we would go to God's word to find answers for every specific situation we find in our world? And that we would say, you know what? I'm going to be a person that lives God's word out, so I need to find out what the truth says. Lord, help us to be people that in the midst of this spiritual battle that we're in, that we find ourselves winning it because we've put on your armor. We've put on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth that we have the sword of the Spirit and that we use your word daily to win the battle for our mind and our hearts as we live in a world that is growing increasingly against you. 
would you help us to stay focused on you throughout the day? And may that start by hiding God's word in my heart that I might not sin against you. We give you thanks and praise and ask you to be with us all this week as we move towards celebrating your death and resurrection. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks for being here this morning. It was good to see all of you. Always remember, Jesus loves you very much. So do Kate and I. Have a great week.